Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, it's Lainey. Hi, it's Joanna. And welcome to Show Your Work, our podcast about our obsession with work. How's your week? Not bad. Not bad. How about you? It was good. I traveled this week, so I'm a little bit, um, I have like travel brain. Right. But it was good. I went to Calgary for the Stampede for the first time. Um, I had a good time. I have. I ate a lot. Yeah, I'm very jealous. I have a (laughs) lot of envy about that. Um, I'm feeling like I need to sort of bring up a a work topic that I don't know how to deal with, which is, uh, can we talk about posture? This is like a behind the scenes issue on the podcast that I, I'm not sure everybody is spending as much time on as we are. Like work posture? I don't mean like the actual, like throw your shoulders back, stand up tall. I'm not quite talking about power posing or anything like that. I'm talking about like ergonomics. As we speak, I am sitting in a chair with my legs stretched out, my preferred position. I'm a tall person, but particularly tall in the leg. And I'm actually almost like kicking you with my legs. Uh, I'm kind of slouched and I'm realizing that like, you don't do that. Not everybody does this. Sometimes I will find myself in my preferred slouched, slumped over my laptop position and realize other people don't do this. Like how much mental real estate do you devote to posture? None. None. I'm also a sloucher. I don't have great posture, but I don't have like leg stretchy posture. Sometimes you, sometimes you have decent posture, I feel. I'm known to have terrible posture. Like, I'm corrected for my posture on camera all the time. Who corrects you? Our producers. What do they do? Don't slouch. Sit up straight. And do you, like, how long can you maintain that when you do that? It gradually goes back into the slouch. I was reprimanded by our producer slash uh, technical director. What is your title, Yasik? Do you have a title? Oh, he, he wants technical director. Uh, right. Which, <laughs> sure, we'll allow. Uh, and... I would sort of ask, can you stay that way? Can you stay that tall? And the the answer is probably not. So, you know, I just wanted to see about uh, whether this is an ongoing concern for some, a, a posture debate, because I don't ever maintain posture for a, for a good amount of time. I'm just fascinated that you can stretch out your legs um, because I most of the time dangle. Yeah, I don't understand that. This is another secret of you working, right? We talk a lot about late nights or overnights or whatever, but... You need a a stool, like well, not really a stool that implies like a you know right. footstool. Yes, I need a footstool so to I, prop your feet on, which is right, like which is what's happening right now. I have a little like stool on the ground where my feet need to rest because my feet <laughs> dangle. I've never met a toilet where I could sit. I can sit on a toilet and my feet are flat. I are inev- you? I'm ju- mostly well, on. That's how short my legs are. I'm mostly on my tippy toes. That is actually better for you though. Did you know that you're supposed to get like a a footstool. Are we getting into this? You're supposed oh, to Oh, right. 
Like you're supposed to be in a squat posture. Where your feet are elevated. Right. Yeah. Like to roughly the level of your bum. Given my long time, lifelong um, problems with constipation, I'm not sure that the tippy toe thing is working for me. Maybe I should put like a… a, Get yourself a stool. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I've never met a toilet. Like people, can can you please make lower lower toilets for short people. I don't know how that would work for Yasik though, because I guess maybe that'd be good for Yasik though. It would help him make, like, um, he has no problem shitting. I mean, I'm not sure we're <laughs> discussing the toilet habits of the technical director uh, at this time, but yeah, it's it's supposed to be better for you. Wow. I really love how we kicked off this podcast with my favorite subject, poo. I thought you might. I don't know why you can, how can you love it and hate it so much? I don't, don't answer that. Don't, never mind. Let's, uh, I want to see how you're going to segue now. Let's see you do this. There is no segue. Shall we? Sure. Okay. Um, I'm pretty sure that, although we don't spend a lot of time talking about this, neither one of us is an Ashton Kutcher fan. Yeah, no. Like, here's the thing. There's not, I mean, there's not a lot to dislike in the context of so many other people where you have to raise serious eyebrows in their direction. Uh, Ashton Kutcher mostly flies under the radar, but he's never my favorite. No. No, I, he's never my favorite, never has been. I, um, in fact, like, I mean, I don't Justin Timberlake him, but I really think he's a fucking idiot. Based on based on past behaviors, which are documented extensively on the blog, but I'll give you an example. Like, um, you remember the Jerry Sandusky, Joe Paterno situation? Mm-hmm. Okay, and this is Ashton Kutcher on fucking Twitter, not knowing about anything, and then tweeting out, like, why is everybody being mean to Joe Paterno? Leave him alone. Right. Do you remember that? I do, but what I remember about it, oddly enough, is I think that was the point where he had to admit, oh, yeah, sometimes my tweets are, you know, run by an external company or something Oh, no, no, no. That was when he said, I'm an idiot, and I was like, oh, sorry, I didn't know what was going on, and now I will turn over my Twitter to, like, people who know better. Right. Um, so he, that was all him. Like he couldn't, unfortunately, or he couldn't find like a minion to blame for that one. But my point is about that disconnect is, you know, I think that most people will acknowledge that Ashton Kutcher is not Daniel Day-Lewis. So his acting skills are, you know, nobody's getting him to play the prestige part in a prestige film. Okay. But what people generally assign to Ashton Kutcher is that he's some kind of like tech whiz, that he knows about tech investing. Wait, really? Based on what? Based on the fact that he's made some good investments in tech buildups and startups and whatever, and they've worked out really well for him and he's made money. Okay. Yeah. All right. So he, listen, I can't list uh, off all the tech investments he's made, but you know, he did that. Do you remember he did that Twitter competition for followers with CNN a few years ago? And it was based on the fact that, like, he was tapped in and social media and, the you know, he was some sort of king of knowing how to manipulate the platform. And then I think he was early in with Spotify. 
Sure. That makes sense. Um, certainly, he invested in Uber. There you go. Uh, and made something like a hundred times his investment. Right. You know? So, because of that, people associate Ashton Kutcher with bad acting, but great business. Okay. So that there's that part of his work side where, hey, you know, he might be a joke when it comes to being a thespian, but he's not a joke when it comes to, wow, real dollars and cents. Like he knows what he's doing. He has at least advisors or some kind of investment portfolio that we need to respect. Well, he invests with Guy Siri, right? Like this is the, this is sort of the, the idea here is that he has this investment partner. Yeah, I guess. Like, is if that's his investment partner, I think that like generally, though. I mean, I don't know that Guy Osiri is a household name. I would say that Mo- Ashton Kutcher is definitely more recognizable, yeah, and that of part of that resume and that public image is, oh, he's super tech smart. Sure. Okay. I mean, investment smart. Sure, I get that. So the reason why we're kicking it off with Ashton Kutcher today is because. Um, Ashton Kutcher being of the tech world, I guess, because he's made so much money from it, um, is going to be hosting a Facebook chat about gender equality and sexism in the workplace on Monday morning, which is today, this morning, by the time this gets posted, um, to help things move forward for women. And let's be clear, uh, about women in the workplace in Silicon Valley, in tech investors, Yes. Correct. Go. F- okay. So this, um, and I'm going from a Glamour article that we will be uh, linking to. Um, so Glamour, according to Glamour, he posted the announcement on Thursday through his LinkedIn page, including a list of talking points. So here are some of the talking points, and I'm not going to read all of them, but this is, this is what we're dealing with here. A couple of questions that I would love to include public commentary on. What are the rules for dating in the workplace? Flirting. Flirting? What are the clear red lines? Where does the line between work life and social life stop and start? Red, maybe, I'm, maybe I should read all of these. I think Joanna. you do because yeah. the one, uh, when yeah. I read this first, the first three made me roll my eyes, but the fourth one is the one that makes me want to punch things. So please go ahead. Right. And I should mention that our, what, technical director, is that the title we've sure, given him? Sure, Yasik, as soon as he heard... Um, the first question, because he's, he, had, he didn't know about this issue, immediately cringed and is now face palm, double face palming and exhaling deeply he, and laughing. But um, like, yeah, there's a, there's, yeah. fists are in a face. Correct. Okay, I will continue. Given that in the short term, we are clearly bound by the existing educated talent pool in STEM, other than promoting STEM education parity going forward, how do we stopgap a solution? Sorry, no. Can we just take that one again? Yeah, exactly. I think we actually just have to break that down and take it again. (laughs) Given that in the short term, we are clearly bound by the existing educated talent pool in STEM. So, sorry, can we parse that into language? So, given that in the short term... All these misogynistic assholes are the only ones who know how to code. Guys, how do I keep my money? Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah, that's obnoxious. Please, keep going if you can. Should investors invest in ideas that they believe to have less merit so as to create equality across a portfolio? (laughs) Fuck you. We're not finished. No, I just threw (laughs) a very expensive box of sunglasses across a room because what the fuck? Yeah. Um, How do we create channels to promote female entrepreneurship? 
Uh, what advice should we be giving to female entrepreneurs? Pause, Thank you. Pause. I've been waiting so long for advice from Ashton Kutcher. Well, who is the we in this scenario? What advice should we, who is the we? Obviously not women because he's, right. right? We've just started, Joanna. So maybe, I don't know. I what, don't In our care. business, we, we call it hold back. Hold back. Hold back. No, I, I can reach new heights. Don't you worry. Are there known mentorship programs for female entrepreneurs? Are there any aggregated or clear pieces of media or educational platforms to help men understand where their blind spots may be? <laughs> Obviously, the, read, the interpretation of that read is solely my own, but… No, it's not. Let's try that again. Are there any aggregated or clear pieces of media or educational platforms to help men understand where their blind spots may be? Yeah, I have I have notes on your read. <laughs> to help men. Oh, Let's right. Help them. Help the men, yes. To help men understand where their blind spots may be. And then finally, are these the right questions? <laughs> um, okay. So I think that we should also mention here that Ashton Kutcher in the last few years, has taken it upon himself to be an advocate for women's rights around the world and underprivileged women, abused women and children. Um, so, you know, this is not – like, this is – for him, like, if you are pro-Ashton Kutcher, which I would like to meet you and um, discuss, but if you are pro-Ashton Kutcher – you might bring up that point, like, this is not new. He has claimed to be of women and women's rights for some time. Anyway, Duanna, let's proceed. Okay, but the, wait, no, but why, let's talk about why you brought that up, though. Like, you can be for women's rights, as many, many, many men are. You can be for equality and still be asking the wrong goddamn questions. Right. And not think that you are the person who is able to help just because, because why? Because you're hosting a discussion? Because, because you're married to a woman? Like, this is a thing that is obviously complicated, obviously hard to unpack, and it really does, it, it's in danger of whataboutism, right? Because as we talked about, whataboutism being the kind of disease when somebody says, well, I'm going to put attention to this. It's in danger of, of somebody saying, well, what about all the women who you're not giving a voice to? What about this? Like, are we looking at Ashton Kutcher hosting a forum for women to talk, a Facebook chat, is it? And, and sort of in our, in our, And in our energy to make him know how misguided each question is, are we missing sort of the grander, greater effort to have the conversation? Like basically at least he's wanting to be part of a conversation. I suppose that's a tack that could be taken. Sure. I get that and that's very magnanimous. I'm but, not trying to be magnanimous, but I'm trying to see whether is there a situation where anybody could be shot in the foot for, you know, reading aloud that list of questions the way we just did. I don't think so because many women, including women in tech and in Silicon Valley, tweeted back at him or messaged back and was like, you're a dick, shut up. Um, I will say that 
my point about him not being a quote unquote novice in the area of women's rights is if you are going to present yourself that way, my expectation is that you would have had at least some conversation, some background, some preparation. You would have done some homework as to where the discussion might be most helpful. These lists of this list of questions, while someone might argue is, well, at least he's coming forward, is not um, someone who pretends not to be a novice. No, in fact, it reads like somebody who's never met a woman before. Correct. Let alone and if, yes, a exactly. professional in tech, tech, right? Exactly. And, you know, we should be clear that as more and more stories come out about really egregious, but unfortunately not that surprising behavior uh, from lots of companies in Silicon Valley, most notably, but certainly not the only being Uber and yeah. several high-ranking executives there. Uh, yeah, this Ashton Kutcher is talking like somebody who has just discovered that there might be right. an issue that he can fix on a Monday morning Correct. on Facebook. And if that were the case, perhaps you could make the case of whataboutism or at leastism, right? But I don't think that that argument works here for Ashton Kutcher because he, number one, claims to be of that industry. Number two, claims to have had some background and is passionate about this issue across a wide variety of industries when it comes to women's equality and women's opportunity. So I'm going to hold him to a higher standard, although even that coming out of my mouth seems like stupid and wrong. <laughs> Wait, why? <laughs> because, listen, he's he's that he plays the dolt. We have seen him be the dolt. Um, in that part of that one part of his profession, the acting profession. Sure. And so I think that like that carried him for some time. And then this whole tech expert thing emerged and people were like, no, man, like he just plays a dork, but like he's actually like, look how much money he's made and like he's savvy and but whatever. Sorry, who is sure. saying this? Well, I think that the people who would go to Ashton Kutcher and be like, hey, Ashton, what's a solid investment? Give us the advice. Like, but that's what I'm, I'm questioning. I don't think those people exist. And that's why this is such a shocking, offensive um, conversation here is because I don't think anybody is looking for Ashton Kutcher's advice to solve this. I don't think anybody is going, you know who we need here? No, not Batman. No, not Obama. We need Ashton Kutcher. Like, we have to have him solve For female the equality. That's right. The like, future is female with help from Ashton Kutcher. That's what kills me here, is that of all the people, of all the kind of input that we could be finding, who was asking for Ashton Kutcher? My answer is absolutely nobody. No, but Ashton Kutcher offered himself. Well, that is a different conversation. was told, so um, he has since sort of apologized and clarified on Twitter. Um, on Friday, he wrote on Twitter, um, listen, let me just read. Thank you everyone for the feedback on the questions I posted on LinkedIn, good and bad. Already a learning experience. Looking to host an open live conversation on Monday morning about gender equality in the workplace. I've already offended some folks by asking the wrong questions I'm certain given the sensitivity of the topic, I will say other things wrong. <sighs> okay, but here's what really upset our hope oh we God, can let you're me not finish. Done? Oh hope, God. Hope we can find space to be wrong in the pursuit of getting it right. We have centuries of ground to make up 
in a short order, and I don't want the basics to be off limits. Some clearly don't yet get the basics. So thanks, Ashton Kutcher. So he's building in room for being like, com- like still ignorant. Well, not just that, but there's so many dog whistle words in there uh, that are dog whistle words to talk about how oversensitive people are, how there's Twitter outrage. Nobody's perfect. Uh, you yeah. know, it's okay to ask about the basics, but all of his basics, let's just lay it out here. All of his basic questions are about, hey, how can I, as a dude, continue to be the swinging, flirting dude that I am uh-huh. without pissing off some of these ladies uh-huh. who are going to be here in the workplace being all lady? First question. First question. On his list of questions that needs to be addressed. Dating and flirting. Yeah. First question. (laughs) And second question, because the second question is a follow-up. What are the clear red lines? So tell me where I'm okay not to get fired. The first time I read this, I sort of thought, well, Ashton Kutcher comes from an industry which is a workplace, uh, but in which he met and married his wife, in which many, many people, first of all, feign romantic interest in one another, either on or off screen, are paid tons of money for same, and, you know, relationships abound. I, it's not that I want to give him a pass, but I'm aware of how little he knows about a regular workplace. I don't know how old he was when he got the role of Kelso, but he has no idea what constitutes an actual work environment. You're, great point. Okay. Okay, I'm going to go yeah. home. Like, good for me. <laughs> um, it's, But it's just shocking that what he still sees as the issue clearly is, well, well, now that we have ladies here, and the most infuriating point, of course, to me was, given that we only have the talent pool that we have, i.e., given that all you ladies in tech so far are pretty shitty and not as good as my super important uh, bros who, you know, may have some problems, but, like, they make some pretty awesome tech, uh, what should we do? Oh, and also, am I obligated to have a diverse... that's mine. No, like, what if the ideas are bad? Do we still have to promote equality? Like, fuck you. Thanks... Thanks for that being your first gear, by the way. Well, and it once again, you know, we've been talking here for the last couple of weeks about executives in mainly the entertainment industry not greenlighting projects from women, not because they're from women necessarily, but because they don't understand them. They don't think there's a market for the stories. We talked about Marty Noxon last week, whose stories were uh, rejected by executives as being not for a wide audience because, you know, 50% of the goddamn population is not a wide enough audience. And that is what this sounds like. Again, you know, should I pick up lesser projects just so my portfolio is diverse? Who says they're goddamn lesser projects except for you, Ashton Kutcher? Nobody was saying that, but now you've labeled them that way, so thank you. Yeah. Anyway, as you said, like, it is problem after problem after problem, and as other women have already called out... Uh, These are definitely not the right questions. Most rely on flawed assumptions and perpetuate problematic myths. This is by Joelle Emerson on Twitter. Thank you, Joelle. Um, So again, that was the myth, right? Who says they're shitty ideas, number one? Right. And that's, you know, where that links to is that links to affirmative action. The 
the yep. people who speak out against affirmative action immediately make assumptions that those who get through on a, on affirmative action are less than yep. and not as qualified. That's right. Right? That they Yes, they didn't actually break invisible barriers. Correct. That they had the goalposts moved. I'm also reminded of, like just to be super current, of that interview with Sally Ride, lo these many years ago, when NASA was preparing to send her into space the first time and was interrogating her about like the right number of tampons to send into space. Would would a hundred be be an adequate number for a week? No, she said with more restraint than <laughs> I have in my entire body. Yeah. Um, but like these are as long as these are the questions being leveled at professionals. Uh, how many tampons do you need? Uh, exactly. What are the rules about flirting? What are the lines? We're not talking about the work and about women's positions in the workplace and being able to get their work done and get to the place where their resumes are as decorated and diverse and well fleshed out as the bros in question. Yeah. And you can't be a partner if you're patronizing. And, well, and this is what's happening here. It's you know, as you told me um, in your note, your director's note about my read of, of that question, oh, it's yes. emphasis on the word help, yep. right? So um, how do we, are there any aggregated or clear pieces of media or educational platforms to help men understand where their blind spots may be? And what kills me is that if the answer to that is no, that's still not the men's fault. Oh, well, there were no aggregated yeah. pieces of media. Well, how are they supposed to know not to be dicks? <laughs> right. So there's a patronizing tone here. It's like, I'm here. I have arrived on my cape. How can I help? Let me rescue you women. And then on the other side, it's, we don't really hold anyone accountable. It's because there's no whatever, aggregated or clear pieces of media. It's Ashton Kutcher essentially using as many big words in certain combinations as he can to sound important. Except this is when all it's about fucking bullshit. Yes. Bullshit. Sorry for talking over you. Same. <sighs> now, there was some uh, inference from uh, one of our, our outside sources here at the podcast that, you know, Ashton Kutcher might be treated less, I don't know, uh, less uh, eye-rollingly because he looks like Ashton Kutcher. I guess you would have to care what Ashton Kutcher looked like for this to be a factor, but I don't feel like, you know, we've been dancing around it. You said his sort of bumbling personality will be used as an escape, right? Like, sorry, I asked the wrong questions, guys. Excuse me for living. I'm just Ashton Kutcher. I'm just asking questions. Yeah. And similarly, I guess, you know, a foppish, adorable brown hair who like flops the floppy hair out of his ears. He listens intently to the women, but mostly the good looking ones. Sorry, my editorializing there. Um, is maybe going to be excused more, but I think this is going to, uh, Ashton Kutcher is going to sit back and be quiet for some time. Mm, oh, well, I mean like, uh, listen, we're, we're recording this before Monday, but he's not going to be quiet on Monday because this is where the conversation is going. Remember, he's I, having this live chat. Yeah, but I strong, I bet you money that A, he's going to have somebody at his uh, corporation 
sitting in as Ashton Kutcher doing the typing while he typed while he talks over that person's shoulder so that he doesn't inadvertently say something untoward. And second of all, uh, it, it, he's going to talk very publicly about how he's hired a series of of female advisors to help him deal with the vaginas in his professional life. Oh, sh- oh, sure. Yeah, now you do that. Now. Yeah. Yes, yeah. now. Yes. Exactly. Well, now that he's realized there's a problem. He, and he's part of the problem. Well, or, he well, won't he would say never, that. He would never acknowledge that. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, from, like, a work perspective, Ashton Kutcher, actor slash, what, tech guru, tech investment I, I still have trouble with this. Rich guy. <laughs> actor slash rich guy is yeah. fine. He just has money to throw around that's at right. ideas. Yes. Right? And that's the other thing. When somebody's successful, oh, he's made some great investments. We don't know how much money he invested in things that failed, in like apps that went under. You're right. That's a great point. But he does get a lot of shine for the things that he does invest great in and Good for that him. work. Mm-hmm. Will this hurt his reputation, specifically in Silicon Valley? It may be, but it certainly won't hurt his reputation in Hollywood, right? Where he where his money allows him power to make projects where his capital allows him to make mistakes, his words, and be unscathed. Like, first of all, I don't think Silicon Valley cares about anything except your money. If you want to be an angel investor, like, come on up and have a seat at the table. You can be all kinds of repugnant. Uh, And by that, I mean there are people far, far worse than Ashton Kutcher who are making these companies run, right? Right. So... If not in Silicon Valley and not in Hollywood, I don't know, maybe he's sleeping on the couch for a couple nights. Like, I can't see anywhere where this is going to stick to him. Yeah, and that is basically why I asked the question. Because that fucking, like, that, you know, you can blunder and blunder and blunder and blunder and it just never catches up to the people like Ashton Kutcher. Yeah, kind of. Money, this is what they say when they mean money talks, right? Yeah, and maybe... Maybe, too, money slash someone who looks, and to go back to that point, maybe money slash someone who also looks like Ashton Kutcher. I guess so, but, you know, to to reference one of your favorite topics, uh, Harvey Weinstein is not a good-looking person. Hmm. And on that note. So we've gotten a lot of emails about um, an issue that came up last week and we wanted to hold it for the podcast. And that has to do with Hawaii Five-0 and the fact that Daniel Day Kim and Grace Park have left the show over salary disputes and negotiations. So do you want to, uh, go, go through the background for that? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that's so interesting about this story is that, as you say, we were holding off on talking about it, but at the same time, it seemed like it was evolving right? It seemed as though maybe it was going to go a different way, as these salary disputes often do. If you remember back to the Friends cast all holding out to be paid a million per episode, or when Emmy Rossum uh, held up production of the last season of Shameless, which I believe we talked about, waiting for her pay to be matched uh, with William H. Macy. You know, we were watching this all play out sort of in the moment. And so when we first heard the story about Daniel Day Kim and Grace Park wanting parody with their co-stars, it was kind of playing out, right? And 
look, did you think it was going to go the same the go the way that it did? No, I thought that in the end they would be back on the show and they would have gotten what they wanted. Right. Is that a little bit of a fairy tale? Well, I mean, look, based on those two, you Examples know, disparate that you situation cited, yeah. that I just said, um, you know, you might well have been within your rights to assume that could have been the case. Uh, what happened, of course, is that though they were offered, what was the phrase? Uh, Unprecedented raises. Mm, I'm pretty sure they're precedent. Well, go on. Okay. Despite being offered, quote, unprecedented raises, they were not paid the same as their co-stars on Hawaii Five-0. Yeah. Right? Well, it's also a clever way or not so clever, but an attempt to use language, unprecedented raises, to get out there in the public and be like, we threw money at them. But the bottom line is, you didn't throw equal money. Well, first of all, you didn't throw equal money. And second of all, that means they were being underpaid to begin with. That's right. Right? So, like, if you threw yeah. unprecedented raises and still didn't raise them up to the level of their co-stars on Hawaii Five-O. Then they were being underpaid to begin with. Well, and it's it's an all like what it's smoke and mirrors because bottom line is what they were asking for was parody. Did you match them? No. Then it doesn't matter what fancy language you use. We offered them more money, more money, and what that's it, it's a little gross because what that message is, and this is coming from the showrunner Peter Lenkoff. What that what that attempt was was to make the public think, oh, like they got big raises, like they offered them a lot of money, like they walked away from a lot of money, and maybe they did, but they were not paid the same amount of money as Scott Kahn and Alex O'Loughlin, who are the two top line stars. Yeah. Now, just in case you have never seen Hawaii Five O, this is a podcast. Uh, let's be really clear about what we're talking about here. Daniel Day Kim and Grace Park, both of whom are actors who have been around on the small screen for like… Long time. Long time. A dozen years or more. He, of course, to me, is most famous for Lost. Her biggest credit before Hawaii Five-O, probably… Star Trek, no? Sure. Uh, yeah. Battlestar Galactica. Oh, Um, Sorry. Was that is that different from Star Trek? <laughs> oh my God, you're gonna get in so much trouble. Those dings you just heard were actually just people coming in to yell at you. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> right, but right, Battlestar Galactica, Battle- not Star Trek, not Star Trek. <laughs> right, Hawaii Five O, uh, the Border, uh, which is a Canadian show for many years, Battlestar Galactica, uh, etc. She's well-decorated. Daniel Day Kim, of course, as I said, was on Lost for many years. Uh, But they are, they're both Asian actors. Mm -hmm. And it's significant, right, that they were, A, bonding together to do this salary negotiation, that they were doing it together, not individually, seems to indicate that they felt that they were collectively being underpaid. Right. And, uh, you know, the show, although I don't watch it, is a consistent performer for network. It airs on Friday, which is not like a strong night for programming, but 
on a Friday night as a Friday night show. It was a consistent top performer, a money maker for CBS. Um, and also in all the sort of promo for the show, if you, if you, you know, Google Hawaii Five-0 and look at a poster, it's Scott, Alex, Daniel, and Grace. Right. And it's going into season eight. So all those people are getting consistent raises. As we've discussed on this show before, more or less, if you sign a TV contract, never knowing how it's going to go, your raises for seasons one to six are uh, more or less indicated or at least acknowledged that there will be negotiations at X, Y, and Z point. After six seasons, all bets are off. The uh, renegotiation is up for all kinds of grabs. And so at this point, when the show is so successful, when it's doing so well on a night that, as you say, is not a huge night for TV, they felt like, no, we're still not being paid what we're worth. So when are we going to get what we're worth? So I feel like I want to present the counter argument, not that I'm on side with the counter argument, but I did read an article in the New York Times um, by Mike Hale. And um, according to Mike Hale, who certainly um, in this piece is not undercutting the value of Daniel Day Kim and Grace Park on Hawaii Five-0, says that as a watcher of the show himself and all episodes of the show, he says that Daniel Day Kim and Grace Park are 100% clearly in the narrative supporting players. Uh-huh. Um, that the the magic of the show is the chemistry between Scott and Alex. And um, I'm just presenting the counter-argument. I'm listening. His article here is, the time to fix Hawaii Five-0 was at the start. This is an article published on Friday in the New York Times, and he's saying that what that means is the show did a great job of developing the chemistry between Scott and Alex and their sort of banter and the foil for one is the, you know, the straight man to the whatever, right? That classic combination of men on screen, you know, and sure. I'm leading you there. And that they didn't do a great job of giving that same funness and same weight to the characters of Daniel Day Kim and Grace Park. And therefore, it's clear, at least to him, who's he's watched the show, all the episodes of the show, that these two were supporting players. And if you are going to rank paychecks by call sheet numbers and, you know, importance to the story, then it made sense. And so his point is that it and so his point is that the writers should have done a better job of making the Grace Park and Daniel Day Kim characters more integral to the show. Um, so there's a one counter argument from Mike Hale. Incidentally, or maybe it has nothing to do with this, Mike Hale also was one of the reviewers who dismissed uh, Big Little Lies as trashy um, women's television and soap operatic and whatnot. Right. And look, I will give him this. Unless a show is an ensemble show... Uh, you know, Grey's Anatomy was an ensemble show from the beginning, right? Even though it was Grey, it was about Meredith Grey. Uh, it was very clear that there were 10 people who made that show work. And even though there may have been pay disparities, they were all sort of out there and out front. Uh, some shows are about a real twosome and then the people who are around them. And that's fine. I'm back in the world of Veronica Mars these days. And Veronica Mars is number one on that call sheet for a reason. She is the person around whom the show revolves as it should be. 
The issue with saying that they were supporting players and that they came second to Alex O'Loughlin and Scott Kahn is that CBS and Hawaii Five O is getting away with presenting the impression that they are a diverse show, that they are not victim to the criticisms of all white television that get to come across on, you know, many, many other network shows at this time, right? On a network that wasn't really praised for diversity. That's right. There's this big outcry about diversity. And then there's this show that has two Asian American actors. Uh, I should... Asian actors. I don't know. Are they... Grace Park is Canadian or... um, Hi, Grace. Raised raised in Canada. Right. Yeah. Um, But they have these two Asian actors. They get to claim that. And if you're an Asian actor, let's get real about this. And you're in those roles as numbers three and four on the call sheet, let's say, and you're not the star, but they get to claim that they are a diverse show and that because you are on it with your co-star that you are presenting a non-white face to the network, but you're not important enough to be the leads, by God, yes, make them pay for it. Yes, that's the premium there. When you are pretending that your diversity, so to speak, uh, your diversity on your network, on your show, is something to be proud of, if you're not giving those people the lead sort of dramatic roles, then yeah, you're going to pay for the diversity that they present. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. And interesting because when you use the word pay, in the end, both of them walked away from pay for principal. Um, and that's what sort of like gets me because I I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up right now, but Daniel Day Kim confirmed later after all this went down, that quote was the path to equality is often difficult or mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. along those lines. So the sacrifice was made by him. Sure. But for what's right. Like that's what really kills me that it's oftentimes, you know, there are actors, um, minority actors or ethnic actors, um, people of color who take on roles that they don't love. You know, mm-hmm. they do mm-hmm. it because they have to live. That's right. Because you have to make money and yeah. you have to take the roles that are there yeah. in order to make the money. That's right? right. And you might hate yourself for it. And um, I will never, I, I never want to be the one who's like, well, you know, stand up for what you believe in. Well, they also need to believe in paying the bills. Well, so what's really interesting about that uh, is you remember a few months ago, uh, Roxane Gay actually pulled the publication of a book uh, with Simon and Schuster because she was so upset that they were going to publish uh, Milo, Milo Yiannopoulos' yes. book. And she said in the same breath, and this is why she's so amazing, she said, I can afford to. I can afford to make this kind of principled stand. Don't feel like you have to, younger writers, littler writers, etc. And I would bet that Daniel Day Kim and Grace Park would say the same thing. They, look, while they didn't get the big paycheck that was waiting there for them, they've been paid very, very well by anybody's standards for the last seven years. He has the lost money behind him. She has the Battlestar money behind her. I don't disagree with you that it is atrocious that the people who are being underpaid are the ones who have to take the stand and thus become you know, lose out on the paycheck. 
but from a different perspective, they are the ones who are high profile enough that it doesn't hurt them in the same way as it does a younger, less experienced performer, right? Uh, We talked about this uh, a few months ago uh, with your girl Constance Wu, who similarly was complaining and was like, look, I'm in a big enough position to do this that if I never work again, oh well. But I mean, in in both those cases, Constance Wu took on Matt Damon. Yeah, exactly. And Daniel Day Kim took on CBS. Yeah, exactly. Um, So they were, like, they punched up. Well, this is the thing, though. Even though they're punching up, even though Constance Wu is nowhere near in the same orbit as Matt Damon, she's the closest thing to being close to Matt Damon, right? Who is the bigger, more important Asian star to do that instead? Yeah, and yet, that is also from a pool that is disadvantaged to begin with. A hundred percent. Yeah. I want to bring up Inns Choi. Uh, Inns is a uh, Korean-Canadian writer who created a play called Kim's Convenience, which is now uh, a show on CBC here in Canada. Very funny. It's doing very well. But it's also a play that uh, currently has been mounted in New York. And I guess they have like an open mic after certain shows. And he has a poem or rap that he wrote uh, before uh, that he dedicated to Daniel Day Kim and Grace Park uh, specifically after this was, after this all came out. We'll put the link up to that as well. Just to point out that, yeah, you're absolutely right. These are people who do not have a tenth the sort of amount of capital, but they're putting it out there anyway to create a network and create sort of a support system of, we see you, you know, and to say, we see you, Kim and Park, we see what you guys are doing, even though you're not quite in the most elevated position. This is not the cast of Friends holding out for parody with one another. They were the biggest performers on network television at the time. Um, But to say, yeah, we see that you're in a more vulnerable place, still put a lot of it out there and way to go. But you mentioned the cast of Friends and you did mention Emmy Rossum and what those two groups have in common is that they're white. Yep. And it worked out for them. Yes. And it didn't work out for two non-white actors, Daniel Day Kim and Grace Park. And the message that's sent is? Is that when you protest um, and you are trying to get what's fair, equality is more available if you're white. That's right. And, you know, everybody wants to say, well, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's true. It's just how this situation works out. But when the evidence is in front of you, when the situation stacks up the way it did, you kind of have to wonder. And that's why, as you say, despite none of the people we're talking about being super triple A-list names, they are nonetheless sticking their necks out in places where, let's be frank, white actors haven't had to. Yep. And then we we talk about the general parody problem overall in Hollywood, one with respect to race and then the other with respect to gender. And Emma Stone gave an interview recently in Out, we will link to that, where she basically says every time I've been paid the same amount on a film or a project as my co-stars. My male co-stars had to take a pay cut. 
Which, what? So really, that's not a thing. This the the equal pay that she gets is taking away something from someone to give to her. Right. Which you know whether it's taking away or not. Uh, you know, I can't remember if we've discussed above the line and below the line budget here before. Uh, above the line budget means that the people who cost what they cost on a given production uh, take up X amount for the budget. So if you have, say, $10 million and you're going to pay, say, $3 million to the director and $2.5 million each to your two co-stars uh, and the rest of it goes below the line for your show. Uh, well, if it's Emma Stone and the writers and whoever else is involved in above the line, below the line. But so if somebody else costs more, if you want an actor who costs three and a half million, well, then that money has to come out of somebody's budget. And it may as well be your female co-stars. It may as well be Emma Stone's, right? Right. What she's talking about is somebody who has taken a cut on their quote which is usually, but not always, the last money you've been paid for the last comparable project. They're taking a cut on her quote, on, pardon me, they're taking a cut on their quote so that she doesn't have to look like she's making less money than they are. And again, she's an Oscar-winning actress, and her quote is as high as anyone's in Hollywood. It's not like she got the big career boost that, say, Brie Larson would have, right? Yeah. She was already doing very, very well. Before the Oscar. Yeah. And yet she's never, never like had walked in the door and not needed the, the male co-star to take a cut. That's bananas to me. Yeah. And it's bullshit. It's totally bullshit because it's implying that the male co-star is worth more, that people will come see the movie because it's worth more. Nobody's coming to see Easy A because of whoever the hell played the love interest in that movie. Do we know who that is? Do we care? No? No. Maybe not. Like, I actually don't remember. No, me neither. <laughs> and even I want to say maybe it's Lonely Boy, whose name, again… Who? You mean Penn Badgley? Yeah. Oh, maybe. Um, Lonely Boy. God, that's a <laughs> deep cut. <laughs> because I couldn't remember his actual real name. That, to serve your point, was… That movie was all Emma Stone. Right. And even in movies where she has like a notable male co-star, nobody's going to see, nobody's going to see crazy stupid love for, they're going to see for her because they want to see the sweet doll face Emma Stone fall in love. Right. Right? So like, what is this? Is it like, is when you send a message like that, when you say, hey, ladies, if you want to be paid the same as the men, um, it's incumbent upon the men. They're going to have to like, you know, agree to take less money. I did not read that quote like that. Okay. I have to be honest. I did not. I actually felt that this was very brave on her point, on her part. Give or take that she doesn't need to be as brave, right? Oh, no, no, no. Like, I'm not saying that was the message she was sending. I'm saying that's the message the studios were sending. Or are sending. Oh, absolutely. That's the message. Oh, you want them to be paid the same? Oh, okay. Yo, so-and-so. Why don't you say that you're making a million less and maybe we'll make it up to you on the next project or whatever. Right. Right. Yeah, no, that's disgusting. It is disgusting. You know why? It's because it undercuts the message of fairness. 
Yeah, no, it's, of it, it doesn't sell it on the basis of fairness and equality. It it sells it on the basis of these bitches, like they're asking for so much money. So Jeremy Renner, uh, Bradley Cooper, whatever, you're going to take less money. Okay? Yeah, you guys take it up yeah. the hoop and we'll figure it out That's later. the selling point. The That's selling right. point isn't we have to be fair now. Let's these women be- are just as valuable as you. No, let's be clear here. And again, we use Hollywood as our marker, but it's not the only place this is happening. Nobody who handles money and budgets in Hollywood is concerned about doing the right thing. Nobody is concerned about doing something because it's right. They're concerned about the money they lose if they look like they're doing the wrong thing. That's what it comes down to. That's why it's on us to vote with our feet. That's why it is on actors who have a certain amount of capital to come out and say these things. I really liked that she said this because now, you know, there are fewer opportunities for studios to hide behind, oh, well, yeah, our last five pictures, you know, our actors have made uh, whatever. They've they've reached parity on the dollar. It's like, mm, okay. And then until somebody didn't complain and then they went back up and made up that money on the next picture. Is that how that worked? I found this to be illuminating and really interesting. And to go back to capital and who can be the people who can talk about these things, we have Emma Stone and a year ago it was Jennifer Lawrence. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if these young actresses have to have an Oscar behind them. It's exactly like that. Until they can actually come out and be like, this is how it works. Well, let me tell you something. Which... That's because, right? Yeah, that's because when it's the men coming out and talking about things, we wind up with Ashton Kutcher. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Last week, we talked about um, Marty Noxon and the interview in which we made that sound effect because she made the sound effect where her mind was blown when she was given advice from a friend who told her that um, when uh, men are offered certain jobs, they go into the meetings like 60% prepared um, and sort of coast through the rest of it on charm and, I don't know, testosterone and balls. Um, And she made this, she was like, mind blown because as we discussed on Show Your Work last week, this is a common female experience where even the likes of um, Angela Merkel will say that she has to overprepare that she has to overprepare in order to be taken seriously um, or to be heard in a room full of men that are much less prepared than she is. And we asked you for your feedback and whether or not this was your experience. And in the non-Hollywood industries whether or not that example applies. Clearly, in Angela Merkel's case, it does. So we have, um, we thank you so much for your, for your emails. You, many of you wrote to us at length detailing some examples that you saw firsthand. So we just kind of wanted to read a few of them. Um, and 
while we usually read your names, some of you have asked us to keep your names out of this for reasons that will become obvious, but please know that we love your emails and we love that you send them. Uh, Here's one that I loved. Uh, And it reads, I have to constantly stifle my laughter in meetings with my new manager because I just hear Borat in my head. (laughs) He is so useless. No real knowledge of the files we're working on. No plan of how to get all this work done. No concept or care of the urgency with which we're working. What he does have is a weird confidence that he brings to these meetings, which he attends completely unprepared. I think he actually takes pride in attending meetings with no notebook or files that are sent around to bring to the meeting, he just sits there in his chair, and when someone contributes to the discussion, he literally verbatim repeats the ideas as if they were his own, and you see people around the table nod and take note of what he said. Mm -hmm. Then this person wrote, Roar, A-S, semicolon, (laughs) L-K-J-A-T, semicolon, F-F-F. So I really enjoyed that sort of freeform part of it. Well, and to build on that, Allison wrote to us, and Allison said that our podcast reminded her of a book by Dee Dee Myers. Um, as Allison says, to West Wing fans, you'll know Dee Dee Myers as the former press secretary to Bill Clinton, who was a consultant for the West Wing. And Dee Dee Myers' book is Why Women Should Rule the World. And quote from Allison, in her book, she argues that more women need to be in upper management roles at companies. Managers will say they they promote people based on accomplishments, but if they're looking at two candidates, one male, one female, they will evaluate the female employee based on her accomplishments. With the male employee, they evaluate him based on his accomplishments plus his potential, underlined. So what Dee Dee Myers and Allison is saying are saying is that um, men get the benefit of the debt of what they will be able to do later. And what men or and what women have to prove is what they've already done, even though it should be based on qualification. Well, already acquired qualifications. Yes. Or judge everybody based on their potential because you know nobody's looking at a woman and going, here's some potential that might be realized, maybe. But it's that subconscious bias, as Allison goes on to say, um, it's human nature to relate to people who are like you. In the male employee, the manager subconsciously sees themselves when they were that young and remembers, quote, being given a chance by a manager. So they give the employee that looks like them, the young white male usually, the same chance, and so on and so forth. Or give them their ideas a chance or let them direct Jurassic World. Or et cetera. (laughs) Right. Here we are again. Yeah. And then there's this great note from Melissa where she says, I'm a psychiatrist and also teach a lecture to residents about sexism and mental health. Healthcare is female dominated. However, the balance of power is still male dominated. I've been in so many team meetings with 10 to 15 nurses and only one is a man. And he almost always either has a management position or talks disproportionately or is listened to more intently regardless of his seniority or expertise or et cetera. When it comes to actual power, i.e. management, health politics uh, research is still incredibly male-dominated. And here's the most interesting part. I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that these positions are basically extracurricular to already demanding clinical work And men may be able to get away with staying at work until 9 or 10 p.m. a lot more easily than women can while still being able to have a family. Uh Uh-huh. Booyah. Yeah. Mic drop. 
Anyway, we love your emails. Please continue to send them to us. Like for us, we get a thrill whenever we, you know, know that you're listening and then you want to add to the conversation. It is such a validation. And the fact that you all care about work and these issues as much as we do is tremendously gratifying. So thank you so much. You get it and get us. And as I think you know from these emails and beyond, that matters. We appreciate it. Okay. All right, next. You sent me a story uh, written by Ashley J. Cooper for The Establishment, and the title is Hollywood Needs to Stop Stealing Trans Stories, and that was published on July 3rd. And a few days later, uh, Andrew Garfield was making headlines for comments he made about playing a gay character in Angels in America, and, you know, the cheeky joke, if you want to call it that, was that he was like, I'm basically all gay because I watch RuPaul and um, this and that, and my friends come over, but I'm gay without the act. Yeah, he's, yeah, he basically said I'm gay and always, but physical, as if yeah. watching RuPaul's Drag Race, <laughs> right? A, makes you gay, B, is the only sort of qualification you need to be gay, and as if there's, anyway, there are a number of issues with what he said, right. uh, and to his dubious credit, uh, you know, I think he has heard that perhaps more clearly than some other people who have been criticized on this podcast this hour. He was trying to respect the gay experience in the sense of he was trying to say, I, you know, it, he was trying to be like equal rights and honor the the gay storyline, except that you can't take away from the fact that him making these comments is in relation to him playing a gay character and taking on the role of a gay character, which, number one, you can't take off and take on your gayness, number one, by who's employing you. And number two, um, is there enough representation, as we keep talking about, an opportunity for people who are gay or who are trans. And when these roles continue to be offered to people who are not gay and who are not trans, then is it fair to the story? So this here are the two sides of the argument. Ashley's article uh, notes, yes, Laverne Cox uh, was nominated for Orange is the New Black, but of course, Jeffrey Tambor was nominated for Transparent twice, has won numerous times, is of course not trans, uh, and then goes on to reference three new projects where Elle Fanning and Michelle Rodriguez and, uh, oh, and of course, uh, more recently, Eddie Redmayne, all of whom are not trans, were playing trans characters or are in upcoming projects. And of course, the point is they're not trans actors. It's not the same thing as, as you say, playing somebody different from yourself. It's more akin to blackface mm -hmm. to play a character who is trans when you yourself are not. Then, having said that, the other argument, of course, is there need to be high-profile people in roles of all types in order to sell movies, in order for people to go to them or get them distributed or et cetera. And there are not many high-profile trans actors 
or openly gay actors or openly gay actors who people want to see or et cetera. Like the pool is smaller. Yeah. And it sounds ridiculous even coming out of our mouths, right? Right. Because of course that's ridiculous. Uh, And nobody ever says when we are introduced to a young, hot, new, straight teen talent going like, well, well, the pool was just so, so small. Um, We just had to go with somebody who's 28 now. No, there's always a fresh, new, nubile face for you to salivate over. Um, That was for you specifically. Um, So why is it different for actors in the LGBT community? I don't know. Like, I mean, in Andrew Garfield's case, he was very specific about the fact that Tony Kushner, who wrote Angels in America, wanted him to play the role. Like, he was, that was part of his rationale. He was like, you know, Tony Kushner called me and he was like, this is you, you, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. I wasn't there for the conversation, but that's, (laughs) that's the idea. The idea behind his quotes is that Tony Kushner, the architect of this, the creator of this character, when the person who's given birth to this character says, this is you, then that was part of the rationale. Sure. And look, you know, the, the, that's fine in the sense that the creator of the project gets to decide, uh, to a certain extent who, who plays which character. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Andrew Garfield is also under fire because he said, oh, I'm not a gay man, but maybe I'll have an awakening later in my life, which I'm sure will be wonderful, and I'll get to explore that part of the garden. Which, even if that's not uh, an intolerant statement, sounds entitled at best. Well, it's, again, I I keep using this phrase, but it's take on, take off. Yeah, it's, it's, I get to see what it's like. And of course, this is the argument about the constant barrage of idiotic university students who dress up in blackface or yellowface or put on... Ethnicities are not a costume, even when you're having an around-the-world party, which is then publicized on Facebook and you get all embarrassed and, and humiliate your people at the country club or whatever it is. Similarly, sexual identifications, gender identifications are not costumes. They're not things that you can just put on or off. But again, as we keep coming back to on this podcast, there's art and there's commerce. So is there an argument for commerce here? Is there an argument that Eddie Redmayne in The Danish Girl gets the movie seen because he is known to be an actor of quality in a way that somebody who is not yet known does not. Or Andrew Garfield being Spider-Man and having the profile that he has draws a bigger audience than, for example, the fresh nubile face that you, you described, uh, the fresh pool of talent that just hasn't been tapped. You know, I'm frustrated uh, because I think, First of all, I don't, I think it's a bit of a false argument. And interestingly, Orange is the New Black is the greatest argument that I have against it. This is a show that even in its alleged star, Genji Cohen has said openly that framing the show around the white character that is Piper Chapman, uh, played by Taylor Schilling, was a Trojan horse to tell stories 
about women who are brown and black and other women of color, women who are gay and lesbian and do not fit the mainstream that we see on television. But nobody on that show was a household name. Do not come at me with your Laura Prepons and your Taryn Mannings. They're not selling a show. Everybody on that show was a nobody, including Laverne Cox. And that show is a mega hit. And Laverne Cox is a massive, massive star. And you did not need star power to do it. I'm shocked, actually, like that that was your first example. I thought it would be something else. Well, the way you're grinning at me means that you're, you're going to laugh about, uh, I don't know where. I thought it would be Hamilton. Because nothing about Hamilton, I mean, I know now, thanks to your um, education and instruction, that Lin-Manuel Merida had um, a reputation, certainly was highly regarded in on Broadway, but at the same time, that story and those names, um, if you think about it, what, three years ago, did not match the outcome and the surge of popularity in becoming, what, the most successful musical in Broadway history? And sold. And so when you become the most successful musical in Broadway history, typically it's not usually with a story and a cast that is not household. No, absolutely. Uh, And look, as much as I always want my example for everything to be (laughs) Hamilton, I guess you could say that was already a good story. American history is a good story. It's told through different eyes. But Uh, don't you think, is it a little Pollyanna then for me to be like, okay, well, the counter argument against the commerce over art is when it's good, then just cast what's good. I mean, I think the thing is that there are always going to be people saying to Genji Cohen, do they really all have to be like, No names. No names. Do they really all have to be, like, have body types that aren't super traditional being on television? Yes, she said. Do they really all have to be people of color, Lin-Manuel Miranda, they say? Yes, he says. Once, you know, do we really have to have a trans character played by a trans actor? Yes needs to be the answer, right? Because until somebody says yes then we keep getting the same result. It's only when somebody says, yes, they must be this way. Yes, I am standing up. They have to be an unknown. They have to be, uh, you know, a character who is LGBT. They have to be somebody who looks this way or does not have a model's figure or whatever it is. Until we stand up for that, everything will get, pardon the term, but not really, whitewashed to a place of acceptability for the more conservative people who sign the checks. But let me ask you this then. I mean, Angels in America is a known entity. Yes. Uh, You know, Emmy, multiple Emmy winning. I love the miniseries. Um, And so when you, is it a revival then? Like, can you call it a revival, this this production? I would have to check to see whether it's been not performed. I think there are actual technical terms. Like a show has to have been not performed for X length of time before it is a revival officially. Right. But. So let's say this London production, whether or not we call it a revival of Angels in America, this is not a brand new production. People know it comes with a reputation. That's right. An award-winning reputation. So based on that, given your experience with stage and theater and whatever, why do you need, do you need a big name? 
Uh, look, it never hurts, right? Like, think about this. Uh, you who don't follow Broadway could tell me who's starring in half a dozen of the biggest productions right now, right? Uh, Hello, Dolly is Bette Midler right now. And Josh Groban is currently starring in that one with the really long name, uh, Natasha and blah, 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 blah. And uh, et cetera, and et cetera. It Laura does, Linney, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, of course, Cynthia Nixon. That's it, right. Absolutely, it does draw people in. There's a small, small group of Broadwayophiles who will go regardless and who hold the actors that are pardon the term, no names to the rest of the world in just as high esteem as the, you know, the film and TV people, right? But yeah, absolutely, it brings people in. Yes, uh, people are absolutely more likely to go see shows that have a draw name in them, even if those people aren't that great. Uh, You know, there was some scuttlebutt that when The Color Purple was doing huge, huge business on Broadway... Uh, last year and sort of in the fall before that, you know who was the big name draw to begin with? Jennifer Hudson. Right. You know who wasn't asked to continue her contract or considered to be all that great in the production? Jennifer Hudson. But it still creates hype and buzz and brings people in and allows Cynthia Erivo to Mm -hmm. now become a household name. Got it. So do we need that from... Our, our trans characters and performers from LGBT performers and actors, I guess the question is, why not? Why can't we have people who are trans playing trans characters? Why can't we have people who are gay playing gay characters? Tony Kushner can and should have whoever he wants in his own play, but what's the problem? What's the interruption factor is the question here. And so now we come to do we need to care about? Uh, Today's topic, a little surprising to me, uh, was Baby Driver, which I saw this week. Have you seen it yet? No, I haven't seen it. Oh, I'm surprised. I, yeah, I, there are, like, I have a list of six or seven movies I need to go to. Sure. Yasik is going to be at the theater a lot this week. Um, Baby Driver, of course, is a, in, in the words of, writer-director Edgar Wright. It's a musical disguised as an action movie. Is that why you went? Because I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have like pegged that that would be a movie you'd go to. Partly that's why I went, no question. Um, The other part, you know, there was a part in the movie, it stars, of course, Ansel Elgort and Jamie Foxx and John Hamm. And there was a part in the movie when uh, Ansel Elgort and John Hamm are their faces are close together. And I thought how much I was appreciating looking at John Hamm uh, and thought that you would have been there rolling your eyes and looking at Ansel Elgort. No, I, I no, 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 no. I can't. Why? He's as youthful and baby-like as you like men to be. Because you know how, like, I am quite particular and I zone in on weird things and I just can't with that name. I'm sorry. With the na- Ansel? Like Ansel it's, Adams? It's it's the combination of Ansel and Elgort that I just, I can't do it. I mean, look, like, you, and- you know I'm ready to go down this path with you, but. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, but no. And, and also Ansel Elgort, his non-film persona is just so, like, I, I, I cannot deal with. Have you seen the music video? No. Okay. I will send that to you. We have linked to it a few times. Anyway. Um, yes, uh, 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 Baby Driver has been a, a big success. 
Yeah. I mean, you can uh, clearly it's successful if it was able to draw even you. Which well, I mean, again, I would me, say that that's not. It wasn't in your repertoire of movies. I thought you would ever see. But it's great. It is. It's about cars and driving fast, Joanna. You can't like be like, even me, what do you mean? Like, But it's very clearly about more than that. Right off the top. If you are like me and you were tuned right into the Broadway conversation and you're like, why are we talking about Baby Driver? It's great. It's got a story right off the top. It's got Kevin Spacey like twirling his own mustache for all he's worth. It's a great movie. I really enjoyed it. John Hamm is really goddamn sexy in the whole thing. Except. Except. And this was an issue that Sarah brought up in her review and a few people have noted, except that Edgar Wright continues to make interesting movies, but there is a fatal flaw. Right. So here's what's so interesting is people said, when I started, I did that thing where I didn't know that much about the movie beforehand, saw it, loved it, and then you go home and read all the reviews, right? Right. And people said, oh, this is a perfect uh, addition to the Edgar Wright catalog. Uh, and then said, but, you know, the thing about Edgar Wright movies, which Sarah so aptly points out, his female characters are Gross terrible. Terrible. This movie nominally has two female characters, uh, Isa Gonzalez and Lily James, and... The movie's really clever and snappy with dialogue, and it's written like a song. Like, it's actually, like, most of Kevin Spacey's lines kind of rhyme if you listen well enough, and they're all in rhythm, and it's really well done. And it's going to win an Oscar for, like, sound editing, and everybody's going to be like, ugh, sound editing, but it's amazing. Anyway, I kept waiting for these two women to have moments as big and interesting and exciting as every other dude in the place, and they just don't and they're weird cardboard cutouts. And do I have to care about the fact that an Edgar Wright movie that was so fun and that appeals so much to the musical part of me and that yes is exciting because it makes that nerd part of me that I love accessible in a big action movie kind of way. Do I have to care about the fact that this guy could give a shit about women? Okay, so I guess what we what I want to do is go like IMDB Edgar Wright, mm-hmm. right? So we've got Baby Driver. Mm-hmm. And then I just want to point out the big names, like the the ones yeah, that yeah, most sure. Do. So Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Yeah. Um, uh, Hot Fuzz. Yeah. A movie I quite liked. And then I think that the start really for Edgar Wright was Shaun of the Dead. Yes, yes. And yes, I, I have a hard time remembering the women in those movies. I, mean, I think Scott Pilgrim versus the world, there was the Aubrey Plaza's, right? I wasn't Ellen Page in that. I, you know what? Actually, Scott Pilgrim has a number of women that we know and love in that movie. It's just that they don't have the biggest, greatest parts, as opposed to nine million shots of Scott Pilgrim moping, the blink and you'll miss it of Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Sort of. She's kind of the biggest deal. Correction, or, Ellen Page was not in it. No, you're thinking of Ellen Wong, perhaps. That's right. No, but, I'm not. I was just wrong. Okay, well, Alison Pill, who's yeah. Canadian, and yeah. perhaps who you're thinking of. Anna Kendrick. Anna Kendrick, which is arguably where she met Edgar Wright, who she dated for many years. Aubrey Plaza, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. You know, 
they're all there. I could have sworn, see, I was about to be wrong because I could have sworn that uh, Mae Whitman was in this movie, but perhaps she is not. Yeah, I could have sworn that too. We are wrong. <laughs> Nonetheless, they're not, you know, nobody remembers their performances really. You know, Ramona Flowers, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, is very much like the Deborah character in Baby Driver, which is they are the object to be one quite literally in the case of Scott Pilgrim, but there's no actual there there. So this is actually my question as a feminist. Can I enjoy these movies while being devastated at the lack of female characters or the lack of development therein? So the question is, do we need to care about Edgar Wright in that should we demand more of him? Or like, am I obligated so often we have, you know that website, your fave is problematic. I'm not going to say Edgar Wright is my fave, but God damn, I enjoyed this movie. And I'm interested in parsing how I can enjoy the movie with one hand and be devastated by the paper cut out female characters at the same time. So as a screenwriter yourself, was there room? Yes. God, Yes. Like, look, there are all kinds of places in every film where some people are just doing utility roles, which is just delivering the information while other people get to do character stuff. But the fact that all of the meaty, juicy stuff, of which there is tons, is given to the men and there's nothing for women? Come on. There's one place in particular where if you had literally erased the character names and swapped out what happened, it would have made a much, much richer and more interesting layered nuanced character without having to change a fucking thing. You could have shot the same shots, almost had the same dialogue, and not had to change a thing, and it would have made the character of Darling, yes, that's her name. Yeah. Deeply more interesting. So here's my callback, if I can properly articulate it. In the Emma Stone discussion we talked about, we talked about taking away to give someone else. Right. Is there an equivalency here? Sort of, in the sense that, yes, I'm advocating for taking away a key scene from one performer to give to another, yes. But that performer that I would be taking away from is already up 90% to uh -huh. the person we'd be giving to. If you're so interested, it's about a reframing. Again, which is what we said about the Emma Stone thing, is that the sell was wrong to begin with. It wasn't a sacrifice. Hey, men, these bitches want like more money. So or more we, screen time. Or we got to cut you, uh, your salary. It's about, hey, to make the story better, I, this scene is going to this person. If you are interested in the scene that I'm talking about, people, uh, without spoiling anything for people who haven't seen it, uh, it's the scene that happens at two in the morning uh, where Baby is confronted first by Buddy and then by Bats who says, we have to talk about this. You know what the this is in this case? You could have subbed either or both of those parts, given them to Darling, and it takes nothing away from the rest of the story and makes her more interesting. The fact that it didn't occur to Edgar Wright, yeah, that troubles me. And then to do another callback, then is it a rewiring the way like Ashton fucking Kutcher needs to be rewired? 
Yeah, I think it probably is a rewiring because this is one of those movies where the women get to do shit and be sexy and be in the action. They just have no layers. They're not doing anything other than being present while vaginaed. Like there's no actual interest there. And I think the worry is, well, maybe they would make it too soft or maybe they would take some action out of the action or maybe they whatever, which to your point is a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be a woman. He sees women only in one way, which means they can only be love interests or et cetera. And the idea that they could be something else, the idea that a woman could contribute to this movie, which again, I super enjoyed without being somebody's love interest is clearly anathema. But I, you know what? I see here that this is the key to the conversation. Um, And I think for me, this is the answer to your question. Um, I think that it's great that the criticism is happening on the shoulders of a movie that's good. Sure. Yeah. If it happens on a movie that is medium mm-hmm. or not that great, it gets lost in everything else. Right. But the fact that it's probably universally acknowledged that Baby Driver is a good movie. The box office was really strong. The critics were really up on it. You even went to go see it. You, ke- <laughs> you have said multiple times, I really enjoyed this movie. But I think that's where it gets momentum. It's like saying from a work perspective, hey, your work is really good. Challenge, though, it's not as good as it could be. And I think that's where I think, yeah, this is where you do hammer your artists. Here's where you expect more from them. In a similar way, maybe stay with me here, I think that's where Sofia Coppola and Beguiled is finding itself. Because she won the Cannes Film Festival Award for Best Director. Mm -hmm. The reviews for Beguiled are actually quite strong. People are, you know quite supportive of the film. Um, And yet, the big conversation hanging over The Beguiled after its release, certainly after Cannes, people were like, yes, this movie's so great. And then as we approached the theatrical release of the film, the conversation that took over was Sofia Coppola has a blind spot. And that happens to be that none of her films feature anyone of color. And that's almost taken over the salt, like I really think that the beguiled had a shot at becoming maybe a momentum film for awards. But what happened is it came out and people were like, um, "This is a civil war movie, and we don't see any black people." I'm going to call out Sofia Coppola on this because this could have been a better movie than it already is. Right, because it's willfully not seeing that part of things. Right, That's right. And this is to do a throwback of my own. This is why Hamilton is and was so exciting for people, right? The conversation about, well, all these people of color are playing all these roles in history. They were already there. It's just that nobody was talking about them before now. Nobody was telling that part of the story. Similarly, and we almost do live as a result of that historically in a post-Hamilton society, you cannot then make a movie in 2017 about the Civil War and not discuss what was actually happening and not make it about what was happening to black Americans at that time. Yeah, and but I do think that when it comes in the context of a project like Baby Driver and The Beguiled, which are well-reviewed and considered very strong efforts, 
then those pieces then reflect as laziness. And they are. Yeah. You know, just to jump all over the place with movies we've seen, uh, I also saw The Big Sick recently. And without giving anything away, The Big Sick is about, is one of those movies where you're dating lots of people or seeing or meeting or whatever, but nobody's right until the right one. We all know this movie, right? We've seen this kind of movie. And there are a number of ways in which this is just like that movie, but there's attention and time paid when one of the women who is just one of the women gets a scene to be more than that. Two scenes, actually, who gets to be more than just one of the also-rans. She gets to express how frustrated she is at being one of the also-rans. She gets to be a fully fleshed-out individual and character and more than just, oh, hey, one of the girls that you saw and discarded. And it made such a difference. It was a huge difference. And it's not that hard to do. So your accusation of lazy becomes really, 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 really pertinent. It is lazy because it's not hard to wrap that into a story. It's not hard to create a more three-dimensional perspective, even if you're saying, oh, well, it's just a really small story about four people. Oh, it's only this. It's not that hard. It takes a little imagination. So yeah, I do care. I do care that Edgar Wright is lazy, and I do care that Sofia Coppola is lazy. And that both of them are successful enough and well-read enough and highly regarded enough that they should know better, right? Yes. Yeah, I care. I love that movie, but that's the heartbreaker. Let us know what you think. If you have the same feelings in that movie or in Beguiled, or if you were so brought along by the story that you weren't thinking about the Bechdel test or anything else, uh, hit us up, send us some emails, tell us what's happening. Or you can send us emails raging at Ashton Kutcher. We will enjoy those too, and we would be happy to read them. God, we can have a whole bonus episode of just <laughs> Ashton Kutcher ranting if necessary. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, continue to check us out on iTunes and Google Play and leave comments, uh, review the podcast. That would be great too. Help other people to find us, to talk with us. We love hearing from you guys. Thank you so much. We'll be back at work next week. So show your work in the meantime. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.